Good morning, good morning. Great to see you and this cable. There we go. Well, I had a great vacation last week. My whole family, um, daughters, son-in-law, their dogs, <laughs> went to uh, the great country of Arkansas and uh, spent some time there. <clears throat> <laughs> so it was fun. We just uh, did some hiking and watching movies, playing games, and just hanging out, which was really nice. I have a few good friends who are pilots, and some are retired pilots. In fact, one guy years ago I knew who had a flight simulator uh, set up in his house. I mean, this is a guy that loves to fly. If you're going to put up a simulator in your house, he actually had it in his office. And he said, hey, come back here. I want to show you something. And I walk in, and this, it's got this whole corner of his office. It's got screens everywhere. And it was hooked up to his uh, computer. He actually had his you know, computer hooked up to it. And he said, you know, and he says, it's great, except the only when I want to check my email, i got to climb in the cockpit. When I want to check the weather, i got to climb in the cockpit. And I thought, dude, you're a pilot. You can afford two computers. <laughs> anyway, but um, he talked about just, you know, what, what the benefits are of a simulator. And I've, I've talked with my pilot friends since then, and they talk about how the simulator really helps them. In fact, they're required as pilots to have so many hours in the sim, as they call it. And it, uh, it basically keeps them sharp, and it's a lot cheaper to have them work in the simulator than it is to take off a 747. And also, it's a lot safer when the airline decides to throw in a couple of emergency scenarios to see how they're going to react than to crash a, a real plane. So, but I thought about a simulator, just the whole idea of it, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we had a simulator for other things in life? Not just, you know, pilots, but like, you know, I've even thought about it for this class. You know, in years to come, it'd be fun to have a simulator of the Sunday school class, our marathon class. And I have your faces, you know, on there. I'd be able to look at your faces and, that you know, we could put a mock-up, one of these here with a screen. And it'd be the real thing, you know, cell phones ringing, people nodding off, people, people walking out. I mean, you know, just so it feels authentic. But what does a simulator do? It keeps pilots sharp without having to burn the real jet fuel, without giving them any uh, danger. It's a safe environment to practice. And I thought about that with regard to our walk with God, because God gives us that as well. Uh, just listen, if you would, to what Paul wrote in the book of Titus. Just listen to the words, Titus 2, starting verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I love those verses because it basically tells us, Paul tells us, that God's grace has appeared. It's a beautiful word that's used elsewhere for like the sun rising, the sun appearing. It's just this gradual brightness that just comes and overwhelms everything. Uh, 
God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And then it says, instructing us to deny ungodliness. And it, it basically is saying that we have uh, a safe place to practice the Christian life. We have the, gr the grace of God gives us a safety net, if you want to think of another metaphor, for us to walk the tightrope, to stay balanced, to walk with Christ. And if we stumble and fall off, we don't plummet into hell. We have a safety net of God's grace that keeps us saved, that gives us a ladder to go back up and to keep going. It's a beautiful picture. And I mention that as we start our time in Leviticus because I think a lot of times we struggle with, um, well, I know we do. We struggle with the Christian life. Our Christian life is tough. Your, your Christian life is tough, right? I mean, because mine sure is. I'm hoping yours is. Because <laughs> mine is too. I know it is. I know it's hard. Faith is baked into the deal. God never gives us a, a Christian life that is easy. And sometimes it's just helpful to state the obvious because our prayers pray for the easy Christian life. God take away all the hard stuff. And it's not that it's wrong to pray that. God wants us to come to him with those needs. But we're also told in the word of God that, that in this world, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But take courage. I have overcome the world. God's grace gives us the safety net to keep going. Don't stop. Don't ever get to the point in your Christian life where you think, you know what? I've tried this for decades, and I'm just not good at it. I just keep failing. Well, you will, and I will. But God's grace gives us that safety net that says, I forgive you. Keep going. Keep going. It gives us that place, that safe place to learn, just like a pilot in a simulator. Well, let's look together at Leviticus chapter 8 and also have opened 1 Peter chapter 2. Leviticus 8. 1 Peter 2, and we're going to start in 1 Peter. Um, by way of introduction, we'll start in 1 Peter, but this, the section of Leviticus that we'll be looking at is a section that sort of turns the page, as it were, and begins to focus on the priests. And it's, it's tough sometimes when we look at Leviticus, as we've said many times before, that it's sort of a challenge to feel like, so what? We read Leviticus with all its laws, and what we're going to read today is really sort of weird, thinking about how in the world do we apply that to our lives, because it seems so otherworldly. Well, what do priests have to do with us? What do you think about when you think about a priest? Now, obviously, we've, we've talked about Leviticus, and so you probably are already geared to think, okay, Old Testament priest, but maybe you grew up Catholic, or maybe you grew up in the Orthodox uh, faith, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and uh, you've got a totally different mindset of what a priest is in that context. A priest, his role, whether it's Old Testament or even the effort today with regard to the Catholic and Orthodox sides of Christianity, facets of Christianity, is to play a mediatory role between God and people. This is the purpose 
of a priest. So we're in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and look down at verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. And look at what Peter says about priests. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, and the emphasis is there, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter says we are priests, which is sort of a novel idea. In fact, I hope that you notice there in verse 9, Peter is quoting the Old Testament left and right. He is pulling from Isaiah. He's pulling from Deuteronomy. He's pulling from various verses to talk about what's true of Christians. But what he isn't doing is he isn't saying that the church is now, or the church is Israel, or Israel is the church, or that somehow the church replaces Israel. What he's saying is he is taking the timeless truths that were true of Israel, but the timeless truths that are always true of God's people. They were true of Israel. They're also true of the church. And he can make those comparisons without necessarily saying, now we're all the same thing, which is, which is uh, not something the New Testament supports. But the point is, Peter calls us priests, a royal priesthood. And he tells us the timeless truth behind it, so that, here's the purpose of us being that intermediary, uh, having that mediatory role between God and people, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, of God, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our purpose as priests, you may have even heard the phrase, the priesthood of believers. It's a timeless truth that was true of Israel. It's also true of the church, that we play a role between God and people, as it were, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. So flip now to Leviticus chapter 8 with that in mind, that we are priests in that sense. Now, in the Old Testament, obviously, the priests had the role of being uh, mediators between God and people, but they did more than just proclaim the excellencies of him who called us uh, out of darkness into God's marvelous light. They also took part in the sacrifices. They, they, they offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people, which is not something we do. Now that Jesus has died on the cross, and all of the sacrifices are now fulfilled in Christ, then, then we don't have to do that anymore. We still tell people about that. We point to that sacrifice, but we don't offer any sacrifices. But in Leviticus 8, this is the ordination of Aaron and his sons. This is the beginning, the official start of the Old Testament priesthood. And there are some timeless truths that we will see in this chapter that happened with regard to Aaron and his sons, that also are true of us. Leviticus 8, start right in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, 
and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So this is not a private ceremony that's about to happen. This is public. It was to be done publicly. There were to be witnesses because they had a public responsibility. If you think about it, even today, public servants are very often sworn in in public. Um, if you look at it from the spiritual perspective, ministers are often ordained in public, elders are ordained in public, and uh, from a much more, even from a lay perspective, when we get married, we're married in public, we're baptized in public. There are some things that happen that have public implications. Now, we read the first three verses here. We could read the whole thing, but we would be here past kickoff time for the Cowboys, and this, for some in this room, would be unthinkable. So we won't do that. It's almost as bad as going past noon. So what we'll do is we'll survey uh, the key parts of this, and then we'll really dial in down toward the end of the chapter, or actually down around verse 22. But in the first few verses, um, we've read the first few verses, and then in verse 6, just sort of scanning it, the priests are washed to remove their ceremonial defilement. Verses 7 through 9, they're clothed with special robes which equip them for their role. Uh, verses 10 through 13, they're anointed. Moses actually pours oil on them and on the tabernacle to show that both are set apart for God's work. And then verse 14 through 20, uh, 21, there are two sacrifices that are made, purification offering and a burnt offering, and they have their reasons. But it's this third sacrifice beginning in verse 22 that we're going to tap the brakes and really look at the details of it because there are some timeless truths here that give us some practical application. Look at verse 22. Then he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. He also had Aaron's sons come near, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ear and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. Moses then sprinkled the rest of the blood around the altar. Well, we could form a line, you know, up here, take our shoes off and just do the same thing. What in the world is this talking about, and what in the world does this have to do with us living in the 21st century? Well, it seems strange at first, but in addition to the oil, as we read, Moses applies the blood to consecrate them or to set them apart for God's work. Now again, think about yourself as a priest. Think about yourself as one who stands in the gap between people who don't know the Lord and people who are in the, between them and the Lord himself. And there are three areas here. It was repeated. Once it was done to Aaron, then it was done to Aaron's sons. And there are three areas, the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. Why the right side? Uh, I'm going to put Harry on the spot here. Why the right side, Harry? Why would you say? I don't know, because Jesus is seated in God's right 
Well, you're right. He says Jesus is seated at God's right hand. It's a place of prominence. It's exactly right. And that's why Jesus is at the right hand of God. And I asked you that only because I knew you would know the answer. <laughs> the rest of you don't have to worry. I'm not going to start saying, okay, what's the blood on the thumb mean? You. No, 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 not at all. The right side is the place of prominence. It's the place of favor. It's the place of importance. This is why Christ is at the right hand of God. And all throughout the Bible, this is what we see. But why these parts of the body, the right ear lobe and the right thumb and the right big toe? These are extremities, obviously. We could look at it from that perspective, head to toe, definitely. In fact, other parts of Leviticus show that these extreme points represent the whole person. But there's more to it than that. Uh, the timeless truth of this text is that as God's representatives, we, his royal priesthood, devote ourselves in three ways. And so I'm going to mention three principles for you, and uh, they're obvious after the first one, but uh, we'll mention all three. And the first principle is this, that a life devoted to God, first of all, has ears to hear. A life devoted to God has ears to hear. Remember, these priests are being ordained to begin their ministry to the people. And in that, the blood of a sacrifice, the blood of a sacrifice that was killed because of them, because of those priests, was put on their right ear. I uh, got in the mail this week my latest edition of the AARP Bulletin. I don't know why they send this to me, but here it is. I've, I've got it. And, it's, um, and I was thumbing through it just because it's fun. And there was one article here that got my attention. And I'll read part of it to you. It's, it says, straining to hear each day, feeling frustrated and sometimes even exhausted from listening. And I read that and thought, yeah, you know, I am. And then I read further, and I, and I realized, oh, they're talking about cochlear implants. I thought maybe they were talking about reading the Bible or something. It's not that way at all. And I read further. But the metaphor is helpful. It says, they are designed to help you hear better and understand speech in all situations, including noisy environments. Well, that's great if uh, you're having true difficulty with your hearing, you know, cochlear implants are great, but it's also true when you think about the fact that we live in a noisy world. We live in a really noisy world, and to hear the Word of God requires uh, help. We can't hear the Word of God above the din of our day. It is hard to hear truth. And yet we're told that a life devoted to God has ears to hear. Our world is full of noise. And if we don't strain to hear God's word through the noisy environment that we live in, the distractions can be maddening. The verse tells us here that Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of the right ear. Why the ear? Because the priest was also always to be listening to the word of God. And this is a great place for the priest to begin. Because if you're not going to listen to God's word, everything just goes south from there. That is the place of beginning. The rest of the instruction is useless. There may be some of you in here who can remember the days before refrigerators when you had to store stuff in ice houses. 
Anybody remember ice houses? Whoa, look at all the hands. I am impressed. Well, ice houses, they had thick walls, no windows. There's several different kinds. You can have like some underwater. You can have some that are underground. But they had really thick walls, no windows, a tight-fitted door. And the ice was cut and then put inside with either straw or sawdust or something around it. And I heard about a man, true story, who was in there working, and while he was in there around all this hay and stuff in this dark area, he dropped his watch. And so he, you know, is looking around trying to find it, can't find it, can't find it. He mentioned to a few of his friends, they go in, they can't find it. And this little boy overhears him, and he says, I'll go, I'll find it. So he goes in, shuts the door, and he's in there for like five minutes. Finally, the kid comes out with the watch. True story. And they said, how in the world did you find it? He said, I went in there, shut the door, and I just got quiet. And he could hear it. And he found it. Uh, I can relate to that because we have a clock in our bathroom. <laughs> and when I can't sleep at night, it's just gong, gong, tick, tick, tick. You can hear it in the silence of the house. Well, I read that story about the ice house and this kid finding this watch, and I thought, that is what we have to do to hear the Word of God. In fact, sometimes we even call it our quiet time. A quiet time is our evangelical way of saying we're going to spend time alone with the Lord. We, we get off in a quiet place, just us and God, and we listen. The whole point of having a time that is quiet is so that we can hear. We can hear God. Have you ever had to, ever tried to have a quiet time like on vacation? You know, where you're sharing this hotel room with a bunch of other people that aren't as committed to your quiet time as you? It's tough. It isn't quiet. <laughs> you ever had to try to have a quiet time when someone's watching television? It doesn't work. I love that story because if we aren't listening to God, the question isn't, is, is God speaking, but is, are we listening? And do we accommodate ourselves to be in a position each day to hear from God? And it's not just a matter that we're in such a place that's quiet. Do we also have the attitude to listen? Remember what uh, Samuel, the little boy Samuel, said when he went into the tabernacle and he heard what he thought was the voice of God, which was the voice of God. Remember what he said? What did Samuel say? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's a great way to begin your quiet time. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then listen. Come to the Bible each day with expectation not just with obligation. To come to the Bible with obligation is a great way to begin, perhaps. Maybe that's the only way that you get there. But to open the Word of God on a daily basis and say, Lord, I am expecting that you will speak to me. I have, I have sectioned off this 30 minutes, this hour, whatever, this 15 minutes, whatever it is, and I am going to listen that you will speak to me to open the Word. And there's great ways to do it. Obviously, you can read it, but I think sometimes the challenge with just reading 
is that we can read pretty fast. If any of you read in another language, that is a great way to read the Bible because it slows you down. Um, another way to do it is to actually read it out loud. Read it out loud. In fact, some people say, you want to hear the audible voice of God? Read the Bible out loud. That is God speaking. And you will hear things that you won't hear otherwise. I like the way the New International Version translates Psalm 78. It begins, O oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Um, Matthew actually tells us, the, the Gospel of Matthew actually tells us that this was fulfilled when Jesus began speaking in parables. That um, Jesus revealed things that were hidden from of old. One of Jesus' favorite way to end a session of parables was to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you think about it, that's why we have ears, to hear. We don't have ears to not hear. God gave us ears to hear. And so when we think about that with regard to why these priests had the blood of the sacrifice, that is, if we think about it from our perspective, Christ's death is our motivation. If you think about it, we got blood on our ear in that sense. We're dedicated to Christ to listen to God's word because of him, because of his death on our behalf. The parables Jesus told had two purposes, to reveal and to conceal. And he even said that. The disciples asked him in Matthew 13, why are you talking in parables? Because he hadn't done this before. And he says, I'm doing it so that basically those who want to hear, new truth will be revealed. Those who don't want to hear, the truth will be concealed. And so you listen to, the, to a parable, and the parable hides the truth unless you're really listening for it. I find that the Word of God is that way as well. If we come to it just saying, all right, I'm reading the Bible today, you know, ho-hum, then ho-hum is what you get. But if you come and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Often, this book that I have read so many times gives me new insight and new a, tw a new twist on a way to apply something or a great reminder to apply something that I continue to shove off. Uh, the New Living Translation takes care of James chapter 1, um, verse 22, this way. Listen. It says, And remember, it's a message to obey, not just to listen to. If you don't obey, you're only fooling yourself. For if you just listen and don't obey, it's like looking at your face in a mirror, but doing nothing to improve your appearance. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you keep looking steadily into God's perfect law, the law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So this may sound like a gross question, and I don't mean it to be gross, but is there blood on your ear? Are you dedicated because of the blood of Christ in your life to listen to his word with the intent, intent to obey it? And am I? Well, this leads us to our second principle. Not only was the blood put on the earlobe, but it was also put on the right thumb. And the second principle is a life devoted to God 
has hands to work. Hands to work. Why the right thumb? Well, imagine a day without your thumbs. First of all, the whole smartphone industry would collapse. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I mean, this thing is designed for thumbs. If we had to do everything with just fingers, it would not work out. Plus, you can't pick anything up. Look how I just picked this up. How would I pick this up without my thumbs? That would be, and then how would I, it just doesn't work. We need our thumbs. Not just for this, but for everything. And this is the point. The thumb is the most important digit on our hand because it helps us grab things. It helps us work. Blood on the thumb means that all of our work is dedicated, consecrated to God. Now, I don't know if you've still got 1 Peter there in your midst, but if you do, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter 4, 10. And if not, I'll just read it for you. Peter writes, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter tells us we've all been given a special gift. In fact, that word for gift is literally a gift of grace or a gift that is given freely to you. It is a gift that is given, but it's not a gift for you. It is a gift to you for the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's a wonderful picture when you think about the gifts, and, and Peter basically summarizes them in two ways. You've got speaking gifts and you've got serving gifts. And everybody who is a, who is a believer in Christ has some ability to serve him, whether it's serving, whether it's speaking, whatever it is, God has gifted us to do that. And we're told that we do it with the strength of God and for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 11 says that. The manifold grace of God. That's a neat word, manifold. Think about a manifold on a car. Those of you who know what that means, I don't. I had to look it up. Manifold on a car is like this central area and all these wires poke out of it. How's that for auto mechanics? <laughs> Harry says, no, no. That's not right. <laughs> then what does it mean, Mr. I know it all. So it does distribute. Does it? I think the point I think the point is that the manifold serves a variety of places. How's that? Can we go with that? The wooden literalist in this class, you make such good students of the scriptures. Thanks for that clarification. Seriously, because I have no idea what a manifold does, which is obvious. But the point, the, the, it's a good word because Peter is saying the manifold grace of God from a central location or from a central hub, 
something goes out and services uh, a variety of needs. God's grace does this, and the gifts do this. Peter assumes that we know that we all have these gifts. Listen to what Murray Harris said. All too often, we regard stewardship simply as a matter of our giving to God. But this aspect is secondary. Before we can give, we must possess. And before we possess, we must receive. Therefore, stewardship is, in the first place, receiving God's good and bounteous gifts. And once received, those gifts are not to be used solely for our own good. They're used for the benefit of others and ultimately for the glory of God the giver. So serving God or having blood on our thumb, if you think about it, because of the death of Christ, we can work for his glory, begins with a mindset that this is why I'm doing it. And the final point, the final principle we see here, a life devoted to God has feet to follow. So there was blood on the ear to hear, there was blood on the thumb to work, there's blood on the big toe. Why the big toe? Well, because most somewhat like the thumb, uh, it's the most important digit on your foot. Your big toe carries most of the weight. In fact, it carries twice the weight of the other four toes combined. And of course, it's essential for maintaining balance. So it's essential. But obviously, this is a metaphor for the priest's walk. For a priest to dedicate his walk to God, there was blood on his big toe. Think of it from our perspective. The sacrifice of Christ in our life has an effect on our walk. If we don't dedicate our big toe, as it were, our walk to Christ, then we're, we're not on balance. Then we're not, uh, we're not walking as well as we could or we should. The priest's walk is dedicated to God. Listen to what Christ said in Luke 9.23. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. We've heard that verse a lot. You may have even dedicated that verse to memory. But when's the last time we've actually paused and thought about really doing it. I'll read it again. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. Your cross, your cross, daily, and follow me. You know, in Christ's day, when somebody took up a cross, they weren't coming back. You were about to die. The point of the cross is your life is over. Jesus says you're to take up your cross and follow me, just like Christ took up his cross. Selfish ambition keeps us from shouldering our cross because we want to do what we want to do. We don't want to do the cross. We don't want to do the hard work of faithfulness to God. We don't want blood on our ears or our fingers or our hands or our toes. We want to do it our way. We want to listen to the parts of the Bible we want to do. We want to obey the parts of the Bible we want to. We want to walk mostly the way we want to go. Jesus says to follow me, you must put aside your selfish ambition. You must shoulder your cross 
daily. And I am so glad that word is there. This is not a once and done decision. This is a, is a decision we make every single day as we walk with Christ. And in fact, I would say it's every single moment that we walk with him. But the, take the metaphor as Jesus meant it. Jesus is our model. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He also rose again. When we take our cross and shoulder it the rest of our lives, our goal is not just, ugh, I'm dead. But the goal is we do it for the rest of our lives, and there's resurrection to look forward to, just like Christ. He is our model, not just in death, but also in resurrection. Uh, this week, I was driving through probably my all-time favorite fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A. I just love Chick-fil-A. And I confess, I got some waffle fries. Aren't they great? Oh, they're so good. The first one is always the best one. And I don't know about you, but I can hardly get that sack in the car, and I've got my arm in there feeling around for, that, for, the, for the waffle fries because, you know, they're just, they're, they're so good as soon as you get them. They're hot, they're crispy, they're salty, they're flavorful. I mean, it's everything you want in a waffle fry. But this particular Chick-fil-A was in the middle of Grand Central Station, as it were, and it was kind of hard to get with all the traffic coming around. There's a traffic pattern that was sort of weird, and you'd exit the drive-through, and then you have to turn real sharp, and there's cars coming this way. So I was really having to pay attention to driving, but it's like, I'm not going to not get my waffle fry. It's like, hey, first things first, you know? Well, so I'm, I'm driving, you know, halfway with my knees, and I'm turning, and I'm reaching in the sack to get that great first waffle fry. I find it. I put it in my mouth. I'm chewing it. I'm enjoying it. And then I'm chewing it, and it's like, this is not working. I mean, it was salty. It was hot. It was delicious. But there was this texture with it that was just off. And finally, after most of the true waffle fry had dissolved, I was left with my realization of what had happened. They gave me my drink first through the window. And I put the thing down, and I got the paper off the straw and put the straw in. And I wadded the paper up and threw it in the sack. And it landed right on top of my first waffle fry. So I, fin I, mean, I had this waffle fry, and I had this paper in my mouth. It, it, it should have been wonderful, but it was just gross at the same time. So I spit it out. And I don't you know, have to tell you, but a waffle fry doesn't look near as good coming out as it does going in. <laughs> and then, of course, I thought about the spiritual life. Because... This is the way the world teases us. I mean, it offers us the waffle fry with no paper. But when we go the world's way, we, we chew it and then we realize it's really in what I thought it was going to be. When Satan tempted Christ, he said to Christ, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now remember the context of that. Jesus was literally starving 
40 days with nothing to eat. And then Satan comes with his low blow temptation. In the wilderness of Judea, if you've ever been to the wilderness of Judea, there are stones everywhere. You can't have your eyes open without there being a stone. And so for Satan to say, just go ahead and pick one. If you're the son of God, take, take these stones and let them become bread. Could Jesus have done it? Absolutely he could have. He was starving. He had a need. He could have met the need. But doing that was outside the will of God for him. And he knew it. And so Jesus responded to Satan with that by quoting from Deuteronomy. And he says, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what we're to understand from Jesus' words is that we don't live just as physical beings, that our life is not determined just on our physical life, but God's word is actually more important, or to, or to, say, uh, to say it the way Job did, I value your word more than my necessary food. God's word is that important in our lives. We are daily, if not constantly, tempted to use our gifts, our influence, and our power, and our money for ourselves, and to justify doing so because we have legitimate needs. And honestly, I've prayed about this long enough. Maybe God just wants me to use my common sense. But have you ever noticed when we go that route how common sense is just another name for sin? We just want to do it our way. When Christ said, put aside your selfish ambitions, shoulder your cross daily, and follow me. We're a royal priesthood, Peter told us, and he told us that our purpose is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has called you out of darkness into his light. And now our obligation is to share with others that wonderful message. A life devoted to God is just that, our whole life, with ears to hear, hands to work, and feet to follow. Let's pray. Our Father, how often we have plunged our hand into the bag of what this world offers ending up with paper in our mouths, wondering why we would make such a silly compromise. When all along, your word clearly has told us, let there be no compromise with the world. Thank you for the truth of the scripture that tells us in a gentle, quiet voice, day by day, in words we can read and understand, truth that helps offset the cacophony of lies we hear all day long from the world. And honestly, very often we hear these from our own thoughts that lead us in a direction of quick and easy solutions as, a, as opposed to a life of faith that waits, that trusts, and believes that your way is the best way, even when we can't make sense of it at all. Father, thanks for this a ceremony that we get to look in on here in Leviticus 8. And although at first it may seem a little strange, it makes perfect sense that these priests were to have ears to hear, hands to work, feet to follow. The same is true of us. 
in our quiet time with you, pray that it would be regular, if not daily, not a ritual, but a relationship where we come to you as more important than our daily food because we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And from that truth, that wonderful reservoir of truth, the Word of God, as we read it, give us this motivation, this, this uh, gratitude of motive, that we would live our lives, as it were, with uh, the blood of Christ on our ears, on our thumbs, on our toes, that our whole life is devoted and consecrated to our Lord Jesus Christ. We love him, we thank you for him, and thank you for this time, this precious time together where we can, for a brief moment, look at the truth before we head back out and, and uh, are tempted to plunge our hand in the bag. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Good message. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.